For June 14th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 676. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Cockroaches. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are uh, hanging out together and talking over the things that we love. Love is maybe a funny word for uh, this week's podcast topic, but, uh, you know, something that we uh, stare at in a, in a kind of awe, uh, you know, for for its entire, what, two hour, 50 minute running length. All right. Um, wait, no, let's introduce ourselves first. I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with my partners in crime, Mr. Pete Fenzel. Pete, hello. Hello, hello, Matthew. <laughs> and uh, Mark, hello. Mark Lee. Hey, Matt, it's good to be here. All right, I'm, 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 I'm so excited for the show. I'm excited, I just, too. I, 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 All right. And I, 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 I think of a reason why. Yeah, let me, let me, uh, <laughs> let me, let me tell you. What, what does this sound make you think of? Oh man, tree pollen has been so bad this year. It's it's terrible, you know. But uh, if you <laughs> so want to just roto rooter out those uh, <laughs> those sinuses, uh, I cannot yeah. I cannot recommend anything to you more highly than pure Bolivian yayo, uh, <laughs> because we are talking about the film Scarface. That's right. Say hello to my little running joke. It's uh, it's uh, our talk about Scarface. Now, Scarface is an interesting film. And Pete, I think you'll agree with me because Scarface is a film whose ghost ship moment occurs in the first shot of the main yes. character because yes. he has a scar on his <laughs> face. Oh. Now, Pete, yeah, right now, I, Pete, I'm given to understand that there is no other significance to the title of the film other than other than the obvious. Uh, would you say you agree with me, or <laughs> would you like to start the podcast off? I'm just saying that you know maybe we need to replace you. No, <laughs> when we when we started watching the movie, I of course have seen it before. My wife had never seen it before, and the camera starts out with Al Pacino's scarred face. And she says, oh, why is he called Scarface? Is that is that why? And and I said, well, you know, he's never called Scarface in the movie. <laughs> right? Like it's never the, that's Tony Montana. He's never referred to as Scarface. Uh, this movie is, of course, a spiritual remake of the 1932 film Scarface, which is itself a spirit, uh, a spiritual successor to the uh, the novel of the same name, which is loosely based on the life of Al Capone, who had the real world nickname of Scarface. Mm. But at this point, the visual vocabulary of gangsterhood, right? And we're only in the 80s, but the visual vocabulary of gangsterhood since the 30s has changed almost entirely with with merely the uh, the jazzy nightclubs remaining, right? The, the, the nice suits in the jazzy nightclubs are kind of the last thing left from the 30s gangsters. That and sort of like yelling about how no one respects you before punching them in the face. Although in this one, you fire a grenade launcher at them instead. Uh, but yes, so Scarface... It, is Scarface the 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 best known movie character who's never called that in the whole course of his movie? <laughs> right? Like, like is this because the word Scarface is never even said in yeah. this movie? So, so on one hand, it's it's a very an entirely visual ghost ship moment. We don't really find out why 
Scarface has a scar other than that he has a violent history, right? Well, that, like, that, it's it's one of the questions that the whatever the immigration who whoever's shaking him down at the at the the beginning of the movie, you know, try I guess trying trying to ascertain I suppose if he's one of the <laughs> it's like the Wizard of Oz. Are you a good Cuban or a bad Cuban? Um the you know the, the the immigration officers are like, uh, how'd you get that scar on your face? And he says, uh, uh, he says, it's from when I was younger. He says two things. One, it's from when I was younger. And two, right. you should see the other guy, you know, and that, that, I mean, I don't know the, the excuse to tell, to tell that, you know, like it's from when he was younger and, uh, you know, he's worked out, he's worked out his issues <laughs> at this point, you know, he's progressed. yeah, exactly. He's had really done a lot of work on himself, yeah. right? Now we, no. we watch Scarface cause it's on Netflix, right? You want to let everybody know that you can watch it on Netflix now. So if you haven't ever seen Scarface, we're going to talk about spoilers, including, why? I mean, this time you got lucky because there's no reason he has a scar on his face. But the other stuff in the movie will matter. So go, <laughs> go watch the movie and then come back. But that's um, um, for sure. Yeah, that's it, it is. Uh, it's through, I think, June 30th. So if you you know, if you're listening to this, uh, I mean, the alien archaeologist listening to this to understand the human race in the future, um, just watch Scarface. That explains all of it. But uh, you can't watch it on Netflix because uh, it, it went away on June 30th. So hey, what what did the human race say to the alien researcher? <laughs> what say hello to the bad guy? <laughs> <laughs> we say goodbye to the bad guy. We'll say right? goodbye to the bad guy. <laughs> what does that make you? Do you th- yeah, yeah, alien. Are you good alien? You're not a good alien. You just gotta fly out of space. <laughs> <laughs> you right, and as you're as you're staring back on the at the wreckage of this planet and wondering what happened, just remember that we had the courage to do whatever we wanted, and that's why our species ended up in in the you know in the situation you're finding us in three can million I, can years I just from now. Offer two quick uh, justifications for what just happened. Yes. Uh, one, I've just revealed to myself how much Cookie Monster voice I've been doing recently to my young son, because uh-huh. Cookie Monster has been sneaking into everything, uh, in- including whenever I will attempt to impersonate Al Pacino on this podcast, you'll, there will no doubt be some measure of Cookie Monster therein. But also, of course, my universal rule, which I don't think I've talked about in the podcast in a long time, which is that as time approaches infinity, all accents approach Wario. So uh, <laughs> the cookie monster is, is highly relevant. I mean, I mean, uh, cookie monster. Let's all let's let's all be really honest with ourselves. Like he has a bit of a problem. He he is getting high on his own supply. That's true. That's cookie. rule number two. Rule number one is never underestimate the cookies. Read <laughs> for cookies. Yeah, exactly. Never. The <laughs> little of the count. Uh, creeping in there, Pete. Like I, my mine is that uh, mine is Russian. Like all accents approach Russian at <laughs> yeah. a certain at a certain point. So you know, um, unless it's one I I can really specifically do. They they all. So when uh, when um, when Tony Montana says Yazloy Chelovek, uh, it's. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I can't give you this for free. So wait, it's it's he's called Scarface because that's the name of the movie that they were adapting. Uh, period. Paragraph it's called Scarface story. because it is a cautionary tale or a confessional tale. These these the subtitle of the 1932 Scarface movie is "The Shame of the Nation," which is probably that this is the sort of this 
it, 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 the sort of original sin of the Al Pacino Scarface movie is, of course, uh, the gap between what you might think of as its stated intention and the way that it is generally understood by uh, its broader readership and also how it's been sort of reinterpreted, recast over the years. I mean, I don't know, Matt, you've gone to a lot of trouble over the years. Uh, we've done this podcast to talk about you know, the necessary perspective that you need to attribute when understanding a work of art in anything approaching its historical context. Where does that place you in terms of Scarface? And I want to hear what Mark has to say about this, too, uh, in terms of like, is he is he supposed to be sympathetic? Is he supposed to be a good guy? Is he supposed to be a bad guy? Are we supposed to not want to be like Scarface? Are we supposed to want to be like Scarface? How does this all shake out? Well, I think like just remember this is this is Brian De Palma, director of of uh, Nicolas Cage in Snake Eyes, right? And that uh, well, know. that answers everything. <laughs> it doesn't not answer everything. Um, no, uh, I, I'm not of, of this generation of, of directors. De Palma is the one I'm, I'm totally the weakest on just cause I don't, it's not, you know, it's not my thing, right? Like I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm like the nerdy kid watching Stuart Lee, you know, and, and Scarface would like steal my lunch money and, and punch me in, in into the ground. Um, and, you know, take everything that, that I ever wanted and make me say thank you to him. That's, that's not, so it's not, you know, this, this sort of like De Palma character, the idea of the like, the cinematic aspect of the, of this sort of masculine, this like macho violence, you know, kind of like honor culture, uh, sort of thing is, and, and the kind of the operatic levels of, of violence and gore. Um, Anyway, so, so like all this by way of apology and like throat clearing to, to say that, that, you know, of these seventies directors, it's probably, it's probably the one that I'm, that I'm weakest on. But I, you know, I, I think the answer to, are you supposed to look, uh, uh, Pete, ask me again if, if you're supposed to, uh, uh, if you're supposed to like admire or sympathize with Scarface again. And I'll give you sure. the, the answer. So talking, of course, about Tony Montana, who is not referred to as Scarface in the movie. Uh, are you supposed to sympathize, empathize with, or identify with him after watching this movie or during it? F you. I'm going to ask a question to Matt in a different way. Is yeah. that um, when you go see um, a Shakespeare play, a certain Shakespeare play they were very fond of here, are you supposed to um, want to see the effing of the donkey? F you. There you go. There you go. There's a certain wisdom in, with that, right? <laughs> right. Like, just, that, yeah. just merely posing the question like that enforces a certain sort of moral framework on the proceedings that may not justifiably be applied to the human condition in all situations. Yeah, I think that's right? not. Like, it's just not what what he's interested. I think it's not what Brian De Palma is interested in, right? I think I think it is skewed to his you know set of concerns like you know i don't know generally as a, as a as a filmmaker and like it's more like the 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 correct questions it, the correct level of questions is like how do uh how do music color and kinetic motion relate to wanting to get laid <laughs> You know, like what? <laughs> you know, I don't know. How does fuchsia make you feel? You know that, that these are these are the important questions. You know, when you're watching the film Scarface about Tony Montana, who is never referred to as Scarface. 
Well, so I think one moment that came to mind just just to not totally throw De Palma under the bus is just a salacious, you know, kind of bloodmonger. Uh, there, there, he does have stylistic elements that are his own and or, you know, wisely cribbed from others. And I think the moment that we experienced watching it, my wife and I, is the shower scene, which, of course, in this movie is very different than most other shower scenes. <laughs> now they are described, uh, which is, of course, when the Colombian gangster cuts Scarface's friend in half with a chainsaw and then proceeds to endeavor upon the same course of action with Scarface himself. And it has this Hitchcockian suspense to it. Right. It's it's very invested in building the tension. It should. But but the the level of overt violence is high. But the effort made to sustain tension is also high, right? Meaning that he will show you a grenade launcher, right? And will show you, you know, the area that the grenade launcher has been shot into, but won't necessarily, like, show you the how the explosion of the grenade affected the people that were there. And also will obscure the whole thing with smoke. So you're not exactly sure what a grenade launcher manages to accomplish in the given situation, right? Uh, you know, Scarface eventually gets killed by the guy that he can't see, who we never see his eyes, who's totally unidentified, right? But in particular with the chainsaw scene, just the anticipation and, and sort of gritty, grimy, yeah, right. skin-crawling feeling of the chainsaw. Well, I mean, a couple things about that. I think you're yeah. right. You're right to call it Hitchcockian, right? Because like, if you think back to sort of Psycho, which is, you know, one of the like one of the kind of basic shower scenes that's like this. Yeah. Well that yeah. right. Exactly. That like you never see, right. All the violence is a closure, you know, it's not, you, you don't see like what you would see in a contemporary horror movie where they've like made something with, you know, I don't know, gelatin and uh latex rubber, right. Where the, like the, the chainsaw bites into the skin. And, and it's sort of interesting that like what you see is Al Pacino's eyes bulge out, you know, as they, as the accomplice, um, the, the, <laughs> The, 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 the chainsaw, the, the lumberjack's accomplice, right? Um, <laughs> it's my favorite romance novel, by the way. <laughs> yeah, like the, like the plaid shirt and the beard on the cover. Yeah. You know, um, and they're robbing a bank for some reason. <laughs> yes. Um, right. Uh, Tony tries to like assert a li some measure of authority by looking away like, okay, you, you know, I can't stop you from doing this, but I'm not going to gratify you by like bearing witness to this thing that you're, you're trying to, to make me watch to, to torture me while you're <laughs> torturing my, my friend. And, and, um, you know, they like shove his face towards, towards it and like won't, won't let him look away and like, you know, hold, hold his face there. And he's like pushed, pushed up against the other wall of the shower. And like, you see his kind of eyes bulge when it happens. Like you see his eyes, you know, open and like, you know, and with that and the, the soundtrack, right? It's another, um, it, it, it's like in Psycho, it's a closure where you never actually see like anyone being stabbed. You see the knife close to, uh, uh, Janet Lee's body. And then, you know, it, you see her screaming and you see chocolate sauce, uh, running down the drain. And that, like, um, you know, that, that, that puts it together in, in your head. And that, like, that, that way of, yeah, that way of, um, 
uh, of kind of dr- drawing it out is really interesting. Whereas if you, if you think of sort of violence, if you think of it a, of a like a bomb going off or something like that, right? Or in, I guess bombs don't go off in in this one. If you think of a gunshot, right? Like uh, there's there's like a build up to an explosion. You know, there's this like compressed. Uh, there's this like extreme compression, and then um, and then an explosion, and the explosion reduces. The, the pressure of the, like, the, the heated built up gas, you know, behind the, behind the bullet. And that, um, like, uh, it re- re-regulates the system. It's sort of like re, you know, that energy, that potential energy becomes, becomes motion. And I, what you're saying, Pete, that I think is really interesting is like what De Palma manages to do is to fire off a lot of rounds, but still keep the compression. You know, like still keep the keep the sort of tension like very high. And Mark, I remember something that you said, which was that even though it was like late at night, uh, when you watch this film and and you have two young children and so are just definitionally tired all the time, um, you couldn't turn it off. You watched it in in one sitting. That's accurate, right? Yes, a hundred percent. And uh snorting a little bunch of cocaine before watching the movie certainly helped to stay away from it. Okay. Don't so, get your own supply, man. Don't do drugs, kids. All don't the kids do drugs who are bad. Oh, didn't get the memo. Didn't get the memo. Okay, so I'm gonna try to approach there's Matt, you brought up a bunch of things here. So um I'm gonna wanna circle back to some of the color stuff you talked about before, right? And this is kind of getting at like, you know, this movie, this very vivid movie that we're watching that is full of violence and like, you know, what we're supposed to take away from it, right? Um, which is, I keep coming back to the word lurid, right? And, and describing this to my wife, who had also had never seen it before, um, I said, this is like one of the most lurid movies that I can think of. And like the the definition that I had in mind here is just like, you know, sensational and just like you know, graphic uh, in, uh, in, in, in sex and violence, right? But when I just uh, did kind of a dictionary lookup here, um, the first definition of lurid actually comes up and says very vivid in color, especially so as to create an unpleasantly harsh or unnatural effect um so that's, that is a way of saying kind of reinforcing that what you're saying like you know the the artistic project of this movie is uh, to create that lurid and sensational like the sense uh, emphasis on sensational experience right where it is engaging um I- engaging you and taking you along this journey that is not you know purely a um an intellectual one and it's definitely not a moral one either right you know, it, it, and like to to throw it up against a straw man, and this is a little bit unfair, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Like that of a Marvel movie, or one of Marvel superhero movies, right? You know, where this violence is enacted, um, but there are these lessons to learn, and you know, things that these movies have to say about society and heroism and our responsibility to our fellow man, right? This movie is not doing any of that. <laughs> it's mm. just like this. Look at this fabulous tableau that I have painted for you in blood. Uh, and isn't it all amazing? And doesn't your body, you have felt something. That is what this movie is trying to do. You, you have felt something is a good, is a good way of, of putting it. So, so Pete, I'm sorry. I kind of, I kind of, uh, uh, hijacked the point that you were, you were trying to make. So I feel like we should pass the ball back to you so that you can cash out all of your ideas here. Well, I just wanted to make sure that we identified because I think of all of the, so, okay, first of all, People might not know what we're talking about when we're talking about the 70s directors, right? We're talking about a cadre of directors that mostly came out of, of USC film school, but also somewhat to an extent NYU, I think, uh, in the 1970s. And this was, you know, if you think about it, if you go much farther back than that, 
you know, film only is, you know, a medium that can tell these sorts of long stories around the early turn of the century, right? And so there isn't really all that much time. There aren't that many generations of people making films between, you know, Thomas Edison and Brian De Palma, right? Uh, both of them really want to electrocute an elephant, but for entirely different reasons. Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> Edison wants you to watch the elephant's skin become incandescent, whereas De Palma just wants to imply it by showing you the elephant's eyes. Uh, but no, but like, you're at this point now where you have film schools, right? You have people who grew up watching movies who go to school. You have people who grew up watching movies who went to school and studied how to make movies and then became professors at film schools. And then you have the people after them who grew up watching movies and went to film school, right? And so this is kind of where we're at, where there's this transformation that's often uh, referred to in what people often describe as Hollywood, which I think they sometimes do so somewhat lazily because it's not one thing. Um but uh, there's a transformation in the idea of what kind of movies you go see when you see big movies. And it's led by films like Jaws, right? Uh, and maybe should we just say it's led by Jaws? Is that just it? But it includes everything from like Jaws and Star Wars. You know, it's Spielberg. It's Lucas. Right. Is that's this whole this whole group of people. Right. They're, and they're included, is, but there is a there is a like the, there is also Scorsese. There is also like out of this uh, out of this generation. I don't know the the um so the, so do you see you the could, Spielberg you could posse? a little bit too right like Coppola and the Godfather of course yeah, so, so, so do you see Spielberg posse and Coppola posse and Scorsese posse and De Palma posse oh, do you are there salient distinct posses in this group of filmmakers that I, we should know about yeah, I, I, mean, I, I certainly don't I think you can I think you can draw a couple of I mean they overlap right like it's a small business but like so the Venn diagram overlaps but I think there are some some circles you can you can draw around people like just the way you know Lucas and Spielberg share certain certain aspects and and certainly share a kind of like a uh, uh pension for for creating blockbusters these hugely these hugely popular um giant movies and stuff that 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 like uh Anyway, the the yeah the um I don't know I'm gonna I'm gonna have to do some googling or stuff or yeah. the 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 book at least from what I from what I remember from taking film class the the big um the book is uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls by Peter Biskin. Oh right, that right, is right. Uh, that like is this 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 time you know um but it but it also like Pete sort of. W- whatever the the specific dynamics of it were and and whatever the kind of the the macro trends were i think it's it's remembered as a time when there were individual voices right and the and the the kind of the individual voices the kind of like and this is sort of post french new wave this is post post like auteur theory of film you know the that the the voice of the director matters a a great deal and you sort of go to see you know a director or a director in partnership with an actor the way you see you're definitely watching um definitely watching Al Pacino in this one or the, the way you go for to those Martin Scorsese movies for Scorsese, but also for De Niro for sure. Uh, and that like, um, you know, that, that these kind of, these subjectivities, uh, sort of matter and, and, and they make a different kind of good movie, 
you know, uh, rather than a good movie being like a well-made play or something like that, like uh, adhering to the platonic form that, that these sort of, these different people can sort of, uh, can, can bring to bear sort of different, different skills on the, uh, on the screen where, you know, as with, as with De Palma here, like it's, it's just, it's just gorgeous. Like every, the, as you say, kind of the way, it's shot is gorgeous. The, the, or sorry, the, the way that the tension is built is gorgeous, but the way it's shot, like the photography, there was a, there's a, I almost like freeze framed, um, the, the shot of the two of them, of him and, uh, of, of Tony and Manny, um, in the, the hot dog stand, right? Mm-hmm. Across from the club. And it's, it's this wide shot where you see in the foreground them, right? Uh, sitting there kind of lounging across the counter of this, this hot dog stand and they're arranged in this, this very graphically sort of cool and interesting way, but their bodies are pointing and they're looking at the club across the street, which is, you know, on the left of the shot and in the background. And I thought that, God, everyone has the wrong still, everyone has the wrong freeze frame from Scarface in their, in their minds, right? It's not like coked out Tony Montana at the end of the movie, you know, holding a, a machine gun or a grenade launcher right it's not it's not that it's the this this is it like that's because that's the whole because it's the whole movie you know mm-hmm. like it's it's him at, you know contained in this like tiny building looking over at the other building like and and wanting everything that that is in there and everything that all of that represents and uh you know um the the uh, you, you you said like it's interesting that scarface is maybe the the best known film character who's never called by the name that clearly refers to him and that is the title of the movie but the the um it it may be also he may be the character who who sort of gets everything he wants and is the most miserable throughout the entire thing <laughs> he's never happy this guy he's never never satisfied he's always pissed off at somebody you know and i really think like tony soprano he needs to do some work on himself he needs to really work <laughs> on like mindfulness you know and gratitude yeah. mindfulness okay. and gratitude for tony montana that's uh that's that's what I think. But sorry, the, we, what you we're talking about. Thank you. You want me to say thank you? Oh, you we're si- me- talking about the 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 generation of directors who sort of uh, came of age in the in the seventies. And yeah, they. they oh no, I know. I was yeah. just say, doing an Al Pacino impression. Flawless, mm. flawless Al Pacino. <laughs> like, what would he say in that situation? I don't know. Uh, I feel like yeah, you guys for meditation is good enough for me. <laughs> I mean, Mark, did you have a reaction to the cinematography of the movie? I did. Um, uh, Matt, the, the shot that you mentioned before is indeed a, a gorgeous shot, and I just want to add like the neon reflecting onto the street as well is like just like pure distillation of eighties um, luridness, um, yeah, as, as you can get. Right? Beautiful, and, look, and the wet street, the wet. Yeah. Street, I actually don't know who shot this. I'm, I'm gonna look it up, but yeah, the oh my god, the wet, the wet street. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So every, I, I, I want, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I want to. Uh, talk about like one scene in particular i really noticed that the camera work here is like really going is very intentionally trying to do something but it's like kind of grasping around a little bit trying to figure out what exactly it was it is um the scene uh is the aforementioned uh lead up to the aforementioned chainsaw scene where they get out of the car tony and his accomplice get out of the car and they ascend i believe two flights of stairs so you know first floor second floor third floor and the camera is expertly tracking them up 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 as they go you guys remember the shot? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So 
and my brain is looking at this and like this is very notable all right you know there's like a million and one different ways you could shoot this but this one in particular like they had to go out a lot they clearly went through a lot of trouble to get it this way and it feels good and it's suggesting something but i'm not entirely sure what it is can you guys unpack it for me uh, well, I get there's a, a few different angles to it. I think the one one angle that I liked when I saw it, and this just might have been me reading into it, was that when Tony and his and Angel climbed the stairs, they climbed the stairs, right? They're focused on climbing the stairs. Uh, but when Manny climbs the stairs, he sends the other guy around the side because he anticipates that somebody else might also want to climb the stairs, and so as a result of Tony and Angel climbing the stairs and kind of not looking back and not looking sideways and just kind of bowling forward, they end up getting ambushed by other people who are also climbing the stairs behind them. And I thought that served, but that's that's sort of like, that's not the purpose of this shot because you have to give it the old Stanley Fish treatment and recognize that that extra information from Manny doesn't arrive until later. You know, in this shot, it's it's it almost feels like they're in a honeycomb, right? Or in an insect habitat, right? It's like a... Uh, it's like Dido and the bees in the Aeneid where they've arrived at the city where these like things have been built and they're scaling them. Right. And they're uh, they're seeing all the activity around them and they're kind of joining it. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, the simple thing is that by climbing by by it's by going into and going up, there's that's the sort of moral action. Right. To go in and go up. Um you know, to you, you, everything, there's a lot of spaces that have kind of concentric layers that, you know, and Matt already referred to the diner, but other places, right, that kind of expand outward. But then once you get inward, you have to go upward, right? And so what you don't recognize is that with the upwardness comes danger, comes dehumanization, right? Uh, and comes, you know, the uh, the various social crimes and social sins that the society is, is sort of engaged in. Uh, I mean, how many different tall places are there in the movie that are bad i mean bolivia right? a, a helicopter <laughs> a helicopter <laughs> don't go in a helicopter man <laughs> don't go in the helicopter that's the highest place where the worst things happen right i mean tony's tony's own temple of athena nike right which is i think what the ar- architectural inspiration for tony's house is you know is the temple of you know a victory right mm-hmm. <laughs> has, except except is, that instead of saying just do it it says uh the world is yours right 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 exactly so yeah i mean i i would say yeah that it, that that there's both a going in and a going up and it does recall old noir you know gangster movies where there are lots of gunfights and staircases uh but it's new because you can see it from the outside right uh which is not something that's I mean, I guess you could do it in a fire escape, but it's a different vibe to it. I know, Matt, what did you think about that shot? So I think that, that like, think about, like, what the camera is and kind of what it represents in terms of what it does, right? And and is the camera like a narrator where, you know, sometimes it's a first-person narrator and you only see things that are kind of point of view or very close to point of view? You're sort of limited to one character. Like, that, you know, that um, is one way to do it. Another is that it's sort of a third, a, a, it's more theatrical, you know, it's a third person thing and it shows you just, it shows you kind of objective, uh, an objective look at what's going on, you know, maybe in a wide shot and you see the different people acting and it sort of is not the, the photography is not preferential, uh, to, to one point of view or another. And then maybe like a, a further, 
way down this continuum. There's a camera that's like curious and is, is almost independent. Right. And, and so here it's, I, I think Mark, like the, the interesting thing is that that is, I think one of two, two or three similar shots, kind of crane type shots where we go down from the second floor, like motel room where this thing is taking place, uh, where this, this kind of botched drug deal is taking place to, um, to the car where who, who, uh, many is sitting in the car, right? And he's flirting with someone with a woman who's walking by in a bikini and like, you know, not really paying attention. And it's kind of like, as you've seen, you know, the, um, the, uh, the, the accomplices sort of show up behind, um, behind Tony where he's standing or behind Tony's, um, uh, what crew guy where he's standing in the, uh, in the doorway, you know, the, the, uh, you see the, the sort of the, uh, others who are they Colombians in this case, I think like just sort of showing up in the, like that silhouette behind him, um, prefiguring the end of the movie, um, a little bit, by the way, like your, your mind is thinking like, well, what is, what's going on? Like, what is, uh, what, where is the, the backup that Tony wisely asked to sort of so wait in the car and keep, and you know, then the camera like floats back down to to the the car it's it's almost like it's a it's a sort of manifestation of your anxiety you know of like or of where you want to look and it does a couple things one it sort of tracks what you're thinking about like where's the where's tony's backup where's his backup and and the other thing is it sort of shows you uh it it frustrates you right like because it's it's sort of like you're you're there like god don't don't you know you're in a gangster movie (laughs) like watch (laughs) watch uh watch your buddy's back you know and no he's he's flirting with uh you know he's flirting with the the young women of miami and that um you know, so it, it, it frustrates you, uh, as well as kind of like as tracking your anxiety. And I think of like re- thinking of the camera as like relating to, um, relating to you as the viewer and, and kind of what you want to see and, and what you want to think and how it plays with, especially, you know, especially in a movie where you're, you're, especially in a movie that is lurid, right? Like that is, is sort of concerned with the, the construction of compelling, you know, visuals and like why you would want to look at them. Thinking of the camera as like being in relation to you and in relation to what you want to see or what you, what you wish you could see, but can't, you know, is, uh, is interesting. Like a, another shot that's like this is in the, the money counting scene where, um, where it goes up to the, to the Timex clock on the wall and you realize, uh, that it's a surveillance thing, that there's a camera in the, you know, in the wall clock and that like, you know, I thought, oh, it's going to like, it's going to pan up to like a big surveillance device. Oh no, it's just a clock. And then the point is that there's a fade and it's showing time passing and we're going down. Oh no, the clock was a surveillance device all along, you know, and that, that was like, uh, um, Another another little uh, another little sequence like that. Um, hey, uh, so, in, in, so in, in short, it's it's not in about- Snake Eyes. In Snake Eyes, that that whole first like uh, forty yeah, thirty minutes of the movie is a single is a single shot. <laughs> no, just following Nicholas Cage around the casino. Got it. Got it. So just so I'm understanding, you're suggesting here that the movie, the cinematographic moves in the movie are deprioritizing the idea of this being a 
a protagonistic movie where the viewer puts himself into the shoes of of Tony Montana and more a voyeuristic movie where the viewer witnesses everything that Tony Montana gets involved in and kind of yearns for lusts for and then does eventually. It's sort of like it gives us it gives us just enough of a distance and acknowledges our desire to watch. Um, and I guess you could say indicts our desire to watch. Um, I mean, it, which it does multiple times, like overtly by talking to us directly about who we are as human beings as we watch the movie and as Americans. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. How does it Pete? How in, in what ways does the film do the things that you just said? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to uh, jump too far ahead, but. There are periodic times during the movie where people watch news broadcasts and the news broadcasts talk about the events that are happening in the world, particularly around the drug trade. And there's an Andy Rooney-esque kind of editorial, right, where it's like, this really gets my goat, right? Um, and it's about the uh, how, how the corruption that stems from the drug trade lines the pockets of the government officials who continue to insist that it's illegal, right? Something along those lines, the idea that so many people profit off of the uh, artificial, you know, the sort of the way that demand for the drugs is routed through this crime, these crime syndicates, uh, that if you were to legalize the drugs and, and tax and regulate them, that, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't exist, right? There, there would not be an occasion for there to need to be a Scarface, let alone a Frank Lopez operating out of his Mercedes dealership with his uh, odd, odd resemblance to Robert Loja. Uh, but he can't be Robert Loja, right? Because Robert Loja is not Cuban or Mexican. Uh, he just has a mustache. Um, but Wait, I thought that, I thought, <laughs> I, I thought he was supposed to be Jewish, that guy. Oh, he's or, Jewish. Yeah, or Jewish right? Cuban. I mean, Cuban Jewish is, you know, um not out of the question. But he, he wears true. a he wears a high on a necklace uh that that you see very clearly when he's being right, killed. Right. Okay. Which is kind of like, ah, to life. Um <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's well there you go you know you're bearing witness right uh, i mean there even is a main plot point in this movie that there is a bolivian diplomat who is going around the country giving speeches about the entanglements between i presumably the cia and the bolivian government right because the idea which and this is a conflict that you know is continues in various forms wherein you know you have two big global empires that are vying for control over this country. And, uh, you know, one of them is Marxist and one of them is capitalist, right? And the capitalist one is backing the drug dealers. Right? No, Pete, uh, not, it, doesn't, it doesn't continue to this day. We would never do anything like like send the vice president of the United States to South America to to tell people not to migrate here. That's I mean, you know, this movie. Th yeah, this movie is a <laughs> this movie is a fantasy, you know, and the, the idea of American involvement, <laughs> the idea that the CIA, you know, that we bear any culpability for the bad things that the bad guys like Scarface do is uh, is is frankly I, offensive, Pete, and you should be I ashamed. Do re I do resent the idea that laborers migrating to different countries in search of like better wages is at all similar to the civil wars that happen over like the drug trade. I mean, may maybe I guess you could probably dig deep enough and find the similarities because they're that's what creates the refugees in an, to an extent, right? But I guess we're maybe getting a little bit. I mean, Mark, did you want to comment on this whole this whole angle yeah. on it? Well, so the the other important uh, aspect of this movie, like indicting its audience, right, it, and then a very uh, hitting the nail on the head kind of way is the is. Tony Montana's big speech at the restaurant, right? 
Is, is that a yeah? Yeah, because we're all talking about the same thing, right? So like it's just brothers who have it's been a while if you've seen the movie. Um, they're out to dinner. Tony Montana is just sitting there coked out and just starts uh, causes a scene at the restaurant and basically starts to yell at all the other members of polite society at this fancy restaurant they're at. They're basically like, you know, what are you looking at? You know, like you're like, you know, oh look at me, I'm the bad guy, right? Because they all need to me to be the bad guy. And um uh I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the director is trying to put us in the position of the people in that restaurant. Right. Um, and so it, it, it circles me back to what we were talking about before about, you know, is this movie trying to moralize? Right. And we're saying, no, it's not trying to tell you that, you know, Tony Montana is the good guy. Tony Montana is the bad guy. Um, that's what we said then. You know, we, it sounds like we might amend it a little bit to say that the moral or political aim of this movie is to um, condemn, like, you know, quote unquote, polite society and all these sort of, you know, uh, hypocritical things about mainstream society that on one hand contend, uh, condemn. Uh, these sorts of behaviors, but also and condone and encourage it. Um, I'd be curious to hear if you guys think that, like, you know, if if um, what we're describing here is an aspect of moralizing or this movie making a political point, or if it is more of just like you know latching onto this to um, further the broader artistic project of luridness that we were talking about before. I mean, I think that to an extent, De Palma gets out auteured in his movie. By Pacino. <laughs> right? Because, like, I think De Palma is trying to be like, look at the seedy underbelly of society, right? Of all society. Because De Palma's not a Marxist. The, the Castro's terrible in this movie. Right? Yeah, no, he's like, bad. Like, he's, the he, communists yeah, are also terrible, right? He's not saying that there's like one side of the conflict that's better than the other. He's saying that, like, all of the people who get kind of pushed to the fringes by both sides uh, do exist. Right. And and end up participating in the, the world, uh, even if you think they don't exist and sort of hiding them off on the sides of society doesn't make them go away. And in fact, like exacerbates a lot of the ills that they do. But it, I mean, there's enough in this movie, at least in the scripts, to suggest that they really want to show you that all of this is a very complicated but but solvable political, if not solvable, then at least understandable, comprehensible political and economic problem. Right. Like like. The U.S. has the demand for the drugs and South America is producing the drugs and and it's they're not the drug, the cocaine, right? Cocaina. Uh, and and so but the, the movie goes into all this. Right. And it talks about, uh, you know, how you connect the supply and the demand. It talks about the different kind of markets. Um, but then Pacino comes in and just and just swallows it. Right. With his <laughs> with his like expressionistic i don't he even does. know he, what he swallows a lot of cocaine like as much yeah. co- cocaine goes into his mouth as goes up his here's nose. the thing is there's demand for cocaine in the united states and there's supply of cocaine in south america and then al pacino is just sitting on a mountain of it just snorting all of it and firing grenade launcher rounds into his living room um but I, I guess i guess the question of it is okay so so what what i'm trying what, what i try to think of is why do why is there such a resonance with this movie in like hip hop culture, right? Why? Uh, why would anybody want to emulate Scarface when he's so uh, uh, desperately unhappy, right, Mr. Tony Montana? And I think part of it might be the idea that he's forcing you to look at these parts of society that you're not looking at. Um, and in that sense, frustrating a lot of the conventional and comfortable narratives about what's actually happening. Um, and I guess what Pacino kind of does is really center the movie on his emotional experience and response and choices that are in line with his situation and not on the kind of impossibility of his situation. 
right? He's not a, he doesn't see, there's never a moment where he's like, oh man, you know, like I would compare this to New Jack City. Have you guys seen New Jack City? Not in a long uh, Sadly, time. no. Uh, New Jack City is a related movie. Uh, it takes place in the crack wars in New York City. And uh, Wesley Snipes plays a Tony Montana adjacent character named Nino Brown, who is uh, n- more kind of overtly nefarious even than Scarface. Scarface is, is perhaps more brutal and a lot more passionate. But Nino Brown is like, I'm a bad guy. I'm going to sell everybody crack. Right. And it's like and I'm, and I mean, and he takes control of a housing project uh, to either use them as hostages or turn them into customers for his crack empire. And there's a big moment near the end of the movie where he goes on trial for his crimes because Mario Van Peebles has been hunting him as a as a as a narcotics cop with the help of Chris Rock and others. Um, and he gives a big ice speech, tea, right? right? Also ice tea. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and it's like, uh, and, and Nino Brown gives a great speech, which is basically like, you know, society should be on trial. This is society's fault, right? Like in the courtroom while he's on the witness stand being accused of being like, I'm not guilty. Society is guilty. Right. Which is like taking the, like taking the, you know, say goodbye to the bad guy speech and just like ratcheting it up past the point of, of absurdity, right? Where it's like, does he expect this defense to hold up? Right? Like, well, I mean, I guess you're right. It is society, right? Like it's, it's, uh, I guess everybody is kind of at fault, right? I guess if we're all equally at fault, Nino Brown, you get to go free. Right. Um, but that's not kind of what Al Pacino is doing, right? It's, it's, he's not looking to be absolved. He's not like being like, Oh, miserable me. Right. Uh, this this I came from nothing and I and I dared to try to make something of myself. And here I am in this sort of tragic, impossible place where I flew too close to the sun and I didn't trust my friends. Right. Like Scarface never is aware of what he's done. I guess that's part of it. Right. Is that you can imagine a, a performance of of Tony Montana where in his final moments he becomes aware of everything that has led up to this point. Oh, and, oh, Pete, you're talking about the Godfather part, two, Right. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I, I've yet to see that one. So we'll train. You, you guys Godfather watch New Part Jack two? City. I'll watch Godfather yeah. Part 2. We'll see which one's better. Uh, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. New Jack City's better. The, the, the gangster played by... <laughs> Only perhaps. one of them has acapella sidewalk concerts <laughs> and New Jack Swing. Um, but... <laughs> and and the answer might surprise you. But uh, but no. So, um, so yeah. So, so I guess that moment where Al Pacino just sort of doubles down... And has a total break with reality in his mountain of cocaine is a is an interesting I, I almost feel like it's hard. It almost requires a new sort of definition of theater to explain what's happening. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> right? Like because he's not tragic. Yes, and right? as you know, as as Peter Brook says in his book, The Empty Space, there are the the five kinds of theaters, the 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 rough theater, the holy theater, the um and the other three. And that Peter Brook in his book neglects entirely the coked out Fantasia theater, <laughs> which is you know, which is why this book should be should be thrown away, never tossed tossed again. <laughs> Again. Out, I, I majored in coked. I, minor, I minored in theater with a specialization in coked out Fantasia. Right. Uh, <laughs> my senior project was a, uh, a gender swapped fusion of uh, Scarface and uh, 
Um, oh man, I got to uh, come up with another one to seal this I mean, joke. It's 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 cats. A, sorry, and cats. Express. Okay. <laughs> I was about to say my yeah, it was a it was a Midsummer Night's Dream, but it was set in the Chicago of Al Capone, uh, yeah. and they all yep. uh, they all shot Tommy guns full of yep. uh, full of cocaine at each other, and every <laughs> every time you got shot, you just got more and more coked up and started started twitching and and disconnecting from disconnecting from from reality yeah i mean it is interesting to it to sort of consider because the the specific ways in which he goes down are so stupid right like uh the tax evasion like you mean he murders his own head of security while his home but, is no sorry, we're, we're not talking about wesley snipes the the oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no the yeah exactly he murders his head of security while his his home is being invaded when when like an international when a group of like international assassins a paramilitary Military force has invaded Miami, has invaded the United States to come murder Tony Montana. He's really concerned with who his sister is sleeping with, right? Like, like foremost, foremost on his mind. Or yeah. just you gotta like, have a checklist, man. It's really four quadrants. Is it important and urgent? Is it important but not urgent? <laughs> it's the seven habits of highly effective cockroaches. <laughs> Right. It's like Stephen Covey says, is your ladder against the right wall in order to scale Tony Montana's compound? The, the you know, and that, uh, like, uh, go, go in and murder him. Yeah. But that, you know, and then from like, there, there is a, there is a, um, there, there is a Scarface where like he's, you know, I don't know, a lot less crazy, right? Like the, the, where he, he, you know, becomes a, a D, kind of operator, you know, instead of, uh, instead of like a firework, um, making him go, uh, 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 as they shoot him with their gun, gun, gun. He's, uh, he's, the, the, and it's not, I mean, I don't know. What is the, what is the tragic flaw? I guess is, is what I'm saying. Is it, is it, you know, I don't know his, his inability to see past like whatever sort of grudge he's holding in, in the moment, like the, the inability to, to think long-term. I, I don't know. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have put all, all his empire together, right? In the, the first two thirds of the movie, the ascent part, like, and unless he was able to, to think that way. I don't know. What, what does all this say about the character and like what, what, in terms of how how he turns out, like, what does this say about the character, and what what are we supposed to think about this this narrative? Like, is there a is there a lesson, or 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 is it more of a f you, Matt? <laughs> like, what's the lesson of Scarface? F you, cockroach. <laughs> it's the coked out Fantasia of agency. I think really well. Yeah, well, or the will. If you right? want to get all Germanic about it, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and that that explains that that the, there's a draw a direct through line from that uh, climactic uh, ending um, to the appeal, you know, to, to, to rap culture. Right. And like, and you know, I don't even want to say that, you know, they're, they're misreading, they're misunderstanding. Like they had a, they had a surface level understanding of that. Oh, that's what Scarface is about. And they like, they quote unquote, didn't get all the other things. No, 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 no. I don't want to condescend like that at all. It's just like, you know, if you are like, if you're in the business of making art that is also lurid, Right. And has very, you know, leans heavily on fantasias of um, empowerment and will and agency. And of course, you're going to like Scarface. It's not a mystery at all. Now, what is a mystery is why um, white 
uh, upper middle class college students at like you know land grant institutions in the Midwest uh, have a poster of hey Tony guys Montana, Scarface oh wow I'm, s- I'm so excited to be here for our freshman year together as roommates at the University of Iowa you're you're my roommate you 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 must be Mark huh and you're Pete yeah. wow hi guys how are you hi oh I'm doing great so nice to be here at the University of Iowa eh. <laughs> say that sure yeah let's go with that <laughs> off shots well i don't know hey uh, uh pete did you bring anything to decorate our dorm room with why yes <laughs> uh excuse me while i unpack this box oh good uh, yes well so I, bought a, I bought a crucifix to put on the wall great you know, here's my fight club values. poster <laughs> oh here's my goodfellas poster here's my scarface oh. poster oh. wait what, wait, what? My, hold, hold what? on <laughs> record scratch record scratch <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, uh, Scarface uh, poster. Gosh, yeah. uh, I mean, what? he's cool. He's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gosh. Uh, well, Pete, I'm a cinema studies major. When when was the last time you watched the film Scarface? Uh, <laughs> I mean, what time is it? <laughs> oh, I get it. You think that it's because of his whole psychotic break with his sister? Just not that part. The poster <laughs> isn't about that part. Oh, okay. It's about all the other parts that are awesome. Oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> I I guess you're 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 really against blowing up children, assassinating children along with their parents in in a car. Is that, is that Scarface's of... tragic flaw that he won't <laughs> kill children? <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> I I think I think that Scarface's virtue, right, is that he recognizes that the narrative that that the sort of system has everything taken care of is a false narrative. And there's a lot of room within the world for individual people to do things, right? Uh, that to, to do things, to change their circumstances, right? Uh, if you, if you, you know, bring enough will now, granted, this isn't an absolute rejection of, you know, the interdependence of people or like the, uh, the sort of broad social effects of, uh, of kind of shared incentives and whatnot, but rather that like you can do something. Right. And it's expect he was expected to be able to do nothing and he can do something. But I think his tragic flaw is that he always uh, underestimates everybody else, which is uh, greatly to his benefit during his ascent. Right. But then later on becomes very much to his detriment. Does does he underestimate their greed, Pete? Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to think like the obvious Greek tragedy. If somebody gives you a list of things that are bad to do. Right. You know, like that's probably part of the moral of the play. Especially if it's not at the beginning or the end, because then if it's being the end, it might just be trying to appease the audience. But yeah, if it's like if your two rules are, you know, never underestimate the other guy's greed and don't get high on your own supply. I do think when when Scarface is in the car and he's exercising his will to not kill the children, he's not thinking about the potential power of the other people involved because he doesn't function on that level. Because in order to achieve his level of personal agency, he has to kind of totally ignore the broader inter interaction of incentives and power structures, right? He has to ignore everything that's telling him that he can't do it. Uh, and and he, it's almost like he turns the volume of that way down and he can't hear it. Or maybe he just uses cocaine to bump the volume of everything else up and he can't hear it, I guess, you know, and that's his sort of leer storm. Um, I mean, I don't know. And so, so in that sense, the moral of the story might be like, you know, sure, be ambitious, but recognize that other people are also ambitious um, and, and so don't, you know, just be willy nilly neglect the relationships with important people. Yeah. I guess that's the other thing. Scar- Cause Scarface doesn't value the people close to him. That's his other huge problem, which I think is related, right? He doesn't, he's too narcissistic. Um, he, he, he understands the importance of agency, 
but he is too narcissistic and doesn't understand the importance of other people um, in, in kind of securing your position. And also in terms of like what the uh, extrinsic and intrinsic benefits of wealth and power are, which involve, you know, your, your posse, your friends, right? Like your household um, or your roommates in your freshman yeah, year dorm. Yes. Right. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so, but that's that's why I have the Goodfellas poster because in the Goodfellas poster we're all friends. Let's ignore the ones of them that get killed uh, in the casino. In this poster over here from Terry Gilliam's Brazil, uh, it's really just about how we're all going to study real hard. Um, and uh, it's called what? Orange. What the Fight Club poster is uh, for hygiene, right? The soap. I just hate credit card or- debt. <laughs> it's a it's a reminder not to sign up responsibility <laughs> yeah not not to sign up for any of those free offers that give you a t-shirt or a frisbee or something like that in order to get you to sign up for a credit card yeah no yeah. none of that uh, yeah and also this one is le chat noir right which is just a black cat it's just a black cat it's a nightclub or something it is it's, le chat noir. it's what it says on the tin it says uh yeah, yeah <laughs> the black cat and it's the a black okay. cat it's a picture picture of a, of yeah. a black cat yeah i, I like mean, it because i like montmartre in the 19th century it was just a very romantic place oh you I must mean, be well, well, you must be a huge fan then pete of the of the baz Luhrmann's film moulin rouge <laughs> <laughs> which is a documentary about that period okay. in our history so 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 we're clearly we're not condescending to the the rappers who uh, idolize uh, scarf or like have scarface as part of their culture and imagery but we are definitely condescending to the 18 year old college freshman who has a scarface poster right and basically just, saying I, like dude bro you're underthinking no, i say you do you do you college freshman <laughs> like <laughs> you know there's there's plenty of time to to learn that that you know your your ideas about the world are you know that's what your professors are for to teach to teach you that you really haven't really put two and two together in terms of I mean, let me, let me just cashing say, out just, the consequences of your idea yeah, let me just say the really obvious thing right just that like it's scarface is just like edgy it's um it, it you know it has this like um vital feeling of uh flying past all the norms um and and constraints of society and that you were uh, subject to living in your parents home uh, and and going to high school probably you know in a in a uh, largely white upper middle class neighborhood right and um sticking a scarface poster up on your wall is right up there with like you know Watching South Park, right? Yeah. We're, we're, we're we're talking about like when we were eighteen year olds, right? Like these are sort of little laxer rebellions. I, I get, yeah, that you yeah. Would make Mark, I'm out. just, I'm not really into labels, you know. Like, uh, I just, you know, like labels, like uh, boyfriend or girlfriend or like drug lord. Yeah, what, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so so I think what we're suggesting is that Scarface is divergent. <laughs> like then like so if if so Scarface is the other if there if you imagine a, a yin yang, right? And one of the fields is Scarface with a little bit of Katniss Everdeen in it, and the other one is Katniss Everdeen with like a little bit of Scarface in it, right? It's like Scarface is about the broad conflicts of society that drive people to desperate acts of violence and the kind of person that can temporarily thrive in that kind of environment, right? And and it might be seen in some sort of minor tributary way as about your parents, right? Like it's about your parents, <laughs> uh, right? But, but generally speaking, the politics is a is a plausible politics because it is a politics based on the real world. Whereas in the Hunger Games, right, the politics is ludicrous, right? And it's like mostly about your parents, 
right? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Now, I don't necessarily, I mean, the Hunger Games is probably the wrong one to totally put that to bed with, but like, you know, Divergence, right? Like the Maze Runners and all that stuff. Like that whole YA paradigm of like the dystopian world. Is, I mean, you could get even, you could even take it an extra level and talk about like, Ursula K. Le Guin in Earthsea as a sort of as the sort of or Harry Potter, right, where it's like it's about an adolescent trying to find his name. Right. It's like the hostility of the world to you is a macrocosm of the hostility of your parents to your burgeoning individuated identity. Right. And like and that's not maybe not maybe that's something that they relish in their cruelty and doing to you. Maybe it's just an unfortunate fact of circumstances. Um, And also all of the things about your life where you don't have no control and you have no agency in your life because you're young and that's how society treats you. But let's not actually believe that this is how like medical devices are made. Like they cordon off one part of the country right? and like, <laughs> and only the medical device people are allowed to live there and you don't go there. I mean, if you could say, well, yeah, they sort of do that, don't they? And it's like, well, yeah, but it's a very small neighborhood. Um, you, you could probably live within a half mile. Of it. Uh, but wait, like China literally does that though, right? That's like, I mean, know. maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I, I haven't really been reading up on how, what the hunger games have been up to lately <laughs> in terms of the various theme parks that have emerged in real world economies dedicated to its glories. Uh, but but I guess that's is that so that's what we're suggesting that like that that if if Scarface is like eighty twenty well maybe seventy thirty uh, society like sort of social political conflict versus sort of individual identity affirmation okay so De Palma going into Scarface seems like he's sort of seventy thirty sixty forty in favor of talking about society right and Al Pacino is like. 80-20 in favor of talking about the individual um, in Scarface. And then, like, if the Hunger Games, the books are, like, 60-40 or 70-30, and in the movie, it's, like, 80-20. I don't know. But you know, you get what I'm saying. I, I mean, right? I, like, I do. I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I don't know how much of this to, to like, attribute to the director because I, I think there's so much – Hey, made in the movie about the kind of the glory, like the, the mm. majestic kineticism of the yeah. will. And I, I really like that, that word, you know, versus, versus like the, the psychological word agency, you know, uh, the will, the philosophical word about like what, what Tony is, is sort of bringing to bear on kind of shaping, shaping the world around him. And like, and also like seeing everyone around him in terms uh, instrumentally like everyone around him as an instrumentality and not as another you know being not as another like and in themselves you know which is crystallized very beautifully um in the in the metaphor at the pool uh where he he compares the the whole town to a small cat and the the <laughs> the like that that like everything sort of sort of reflects on him i think all all the like the all the stuff in the script about um all the stuff in the script about like the actual answer <laughs> like wait wait there there are like national government there are state actors that are benefiting from the kind of the marginalization of certain people and sort of like you know pushing certain uh, industries underground and like kind of turning a blind eye to the extreme damage that they cause to real people and to the you know to the violence that they cause to the people involved in this or that that all of this is like lining the pockets of of people and like by the way the CIA 
CIA is funding the whole thing in order to like destabilize, uh, to destabilize countries in Central and South America and like to, to install authoritarian regimes in place of burgeoning leftist governments. And like, what, who, who knows what the, the, even the CIA wanted to do? If it's not like you can ask them, but the, uh, you know, that, that like, that, the, the, I don't know. I think the the point of that, right, is for the irony, is like for the sort of the sense of waste, you know, and and the sense of futility um to to that that attends this this whole thing. It sort of makes it's it throws Tony into relief, you know, like it it makes him stand out. Uh, you know, like the lights on the uh on the statues um <laughs> outside the club, the you know, the the Babylonian statues holding up the 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 roof of the club. It like because of the the backdrop or because of their backlighting or whatever, like they stand out in sharper relief. And I think sort of Tony's Tony's sort of will to everything, his sort of will to power, his will to to supremacy and and uh and dominance and sort of self-actualization, right? Like um the Tony's role as a free artist of himself is is thrown is thrown into relief. It's not it's not like a, a the political analysis is not about like an it's not about a political analysis. It's about painting a backdrop at in which like his sort of will to power can be most most effectively shown just as <laughs> the blue the like the sky blue of the pool into which he falls at the end it is that blue so that the bright red unrealistic color of his blood seeping out of his body will create a giant billowing red you know stain that that spreads out and eventually covers the uh eventually covers the whole thing um, that, that, you know, that, that's what it's, that's what it's for. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, Pete, I'm, I totally line up with you in, cause I think the, the political analysis is doing a specific thing rather than, rather than like being there for the sake of like presenting a cogent argument about like the problems of, uh, international drug trafficking in the eighties. Did you want to talk about the music? Or did we already cover that? No, I, well, I don't know if we did. I do want to talk about the music. I mean, I, I Mark, what did you think of the 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 music? I mean, I was it was it uh, awesome or was it super awesome? <laughs> <laughs> it, it pushed it to the limit and beyond. Is what it did. Um, the, the, the synth soaked sounds, right? Um, in particular, in particular, how uh, there are no kind of um, you know popular. Uh, existing titles, uh, tra- tra- tracks that are imported into this movie, uh, contribute to the surrealness, the dreamscape aspect of the whole thing. We talked earlier about how the camera is floating around, um, the sense of detachment and voyeurism, and I think the sound, uh, this, this, the the synth pads really add to that effect. That's my quick take on the music. Yeah, synth I mean, pads? It, is that a particular technology that's being used? Oh, the, the I might that be misusing it, Matt. You could probably back no, me you're, up on that. Right? So it's got kind of like pedal sustain. Yeah, you're like, 100 right. The, the droney sounds. It's it, for whatever reason the, those have come to be called pads in people who like program synthesizers for popular music, like the because I guess they kind of pad out the sound. They make that like that kind of droney background and a lot of a lot of chords. Um, but yeah, that like it it really p- uh, dates it, you know. Uh, and I mean that I don't mean it like makes it uh, bad to watch now. Um, I mean, like it, it situates it in a particular place in time, which is, you know, totally appropriate to, 
to the film. I, it is the thing that I remembered least. Uh, and, and the thing I was most surprised by when, when we were watching it. And I really, you know, I really, uh, I really dug it. I like, I really got a kick out of it. And also, also the way in which it, um, the, the, like when, t- there's almost like a Western, uh, aspect to it, right? Like when, when, it, when, uh, when a tumbleweed, when a Miami tumbleweed, like, uh, you know, rolls across the screen, um, and you hear that, sound no like there's there's a thing where tony gets pissed off and like his eyebrow will twitch or something like that and there's like a synth there's a uh synth um sting you know and that oh, uh yeah i know you know, what you're talking about it's like his rage dialing up right yeah that's uh uh that was really cool as well oh yeah that, that's a good touch for sure yeah um and and since we've you know uh, alluded to uh, push it to the limit at least uh, two times uh two or three times in this in this show like let's just kind of cash that out for a hot second right like it's like roughly at the little uh at the halfway point right it's the only song i think in the movie with lyrics in it um and it is the backdrop for this just like ripping classic 80s montage of excess right um Cool, Pete. Uh, music before we uh, before we call it on uh, before we call it on Scarface. Just the um, it's interesting to compare the uh, the Scarface soundtrack with the Blade Runner soundtrack. Huh. There's like yeah. moments that are almost Vangelesque, mm. um, <laughs> Vangelesque, I guess I would say. So Vangelesque, it's Vangelesque. Um, but yeah, in service of a different sort of dreamscape. Uh, that's that's for sure a, f- a fever dream a nightmare rather than a uh, a kind of transportative uh you know kind of either hallucination or a kind of um you know narcotic dream yeah um, it does th- it, it has that it has that effect and the like the the freudian like psychosexual horror of of having his sister in the last scene like you know get gunned down in her underwear while she's shooting a, a pistol at him you know that like uh it it all has that that effect of a fever dream like the the luridness like is is a dreamlike quality as well where things are just like amped up a little bit you know it's like the worst improv director ever is like that's what you should do. You should heighten the game until you get to that level. <laughs> like, you I mean, that's what. Here. Yeah, Tony Montana is just yes ending. He's yes. <laughs> just her movie. He's just yes ending the world. Say goodbye to the yes and guy. <laughs> Say goodbye to the improv comic. Um, but yeah, it's 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 horror. It's horrific. It is. We haven't. Have we talked about Michelle Pfeiffer at all in this movie? I don't no, we, we haven't. Have. Yeah, no, we we should because she's. It's, it's sort of an interesting character, you know the 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 way she's used her. Yeah, I mean, Mark, you had one point about her, I think, which I dismissed in our previous conversations, but maybe I was a little too fast to dismiss. Um, well, about how she um, she's such an important driver for Tony's motivations, and yet is absent for like the the crucial last part of the movie. Yeah, so she's, uh, and that feels she's, she's being uh, we're, we're missing something a little bit. Um, yeah, it's weird end. that she gets replaced with Tony's sister, um, especially because or very appropriate now that in, in in context of our conversation, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Well, also in the context of the fact that Tony is an immigrant, right? So if we it's sort of ring in the changes back through what we've already talked about, Tony being an immigrant is consistent with 
the voyeuristic cinematography, the idea that we're looking into spaces where we're looking into places from the outside, right? We're outside the perimeter, we're entering the perimeter, and then we're going up. So there's a sort of immigrant experience of the camera to these spaces that we're not normally invited to. And that's crudely put. But the idea that Tony has as this object, right, of desire, and, and um, Matt, you had attributed, you had given him some Schopenhauerian characteristics, right? His will to, or I guess you would give it him Nietzschean characteristics. Right, right? will, His will to, power, to power, yeah. yeah. Right. Whereas you, you could also say that he has a Schopenhauerian will to life in the sense that he like sees, sees uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, wants to possess Michelle Pfeiffer instead of have Frank Lopez possess Michelle Pfeiffer. And then it's kind of revealed that he's really heavily invested in having a child with her, right? And, and from what we've seen of Michelle Pfeiffer's character, there's little to suggest that like she's particularly interested in having children, right? Of course, this is a different time where even such a thing would be tougher to discuss. Uh, but even so, right? It's like he is he he seems to have little regard for her as a human being and herself, and to and especially as he continues his kind of ascent descent, you know, his Ozymandias esque, you know, uh, soaring uh, um, soaring glide toward. Total inhumanity. Yeah, exactly. Right? Say hello to my little works, ye mighty and despair. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, but he's he's so he's so pissed off at the fact that they can't have a child that he entirely dismisses her as a person, and then supplants him her with his sister. And it's interesting that because okay, because if Tony really wants to have a child with. And what's Michelle Pfeiffer's character's name? Like he barely even calls Elvira. her name, right? Elvira. Elvira. It's a strange name, right? Well, it's not strange. It's just it somebody else has taken that name and will always have it, right? Um, so, so, well, so I mean, Tony- G- Gina. You know, Gina is not Tony Montana's sister. She she works the diner all day. And well, I was she- day, damn Gina. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, I was going to say, but yeah, the idea that like Tony wants a blonde bombshell American wife. Presumably because he wants to have American kids, right? Like he wants he wants to solidify his legacy in the United States, right? Because he feels so rejected by his nation of origin, which didn't give him any personal time. If you believe him, he does tell the truth even when he lies. So take that for what it is, right? <laughs> like he had, he felt like he had no agency or no will, right, in his collectivist nation of origin he comes this new nation and he wants to establish a legacy like east of eden style that's what he said i mean that's what he says about castro over and over or or about the communists right they tell you what to do they tell you what to do they tell you what to do and then and then once he can't have a child with her then he sort of turns backward right and he goes to his own family uh in this in this and it's a narcissistic turn right it's like i i won't produce a legacy i'll produce another me Right. Is, I mean, I was I was joking with my wife. We were watching it. We we're like, I bet I bet that uh, George R. R. Martin watched this while he was writing the Lannisters. <laughs> it's a very Lannister situation. Right. They're in a tower. Right. Everybody's dying. Right. Um, Tony Montana but the, always I, pays his debts. <laughs> but the idea that Tony Montana's kind of weird relationship with Gina, I, I would I would immediately assume has to do with narcissism. Um, and, and a sort of, and a need to control, right. And a, and a, and a kind of very powerful need to control others, which he's demonstrated on many occasions. Um, and the idea that he kind of retreats inward after he climbs upward, like he enters from outward, he climbs upward, he retreats inward, (laughs) uh, and then he blows up. Um, 
So, yeah, so I guess that's kind of the transformation is that it goes from being a sort of immigrant story to being a uh, a kind of expressionistic narcissist story, right, um, where he's not trying to go anywhere anymore. He's Did, arrived. So, so, right? so Pete, uh, I know this film is not on HBO Max and that HBO Max is really the the domain of the films that were that were sort of stranger and more interesting than than you imagined. But would you say that this this film was stranger and more interesting than you uh, remembered it when you, uh, oh, when yeah, you rewatched sure. it this time? I, I thought it only pushed it like up close to the limit. I didn't realize it actually pushed <laughs> to the limit. No, it is stranger, especially the beginning. Especially the beginning, which has this weird Lost in Yonkers vibe to it, huh. or like just like West Side. It has a real weird kind of like plucky New Yorker kind of uh, mid twentieth century drama feel to it, where it's like, oh man, we made it to the we made it to the big city, right? Like, oh look at the opportunities. Oh, we gotta wash dishes. Oh man, right? Like, it, uh, I don't want to wash dishes. I'm destined for great things, right? It's like, is it how to succeed in business without really trying? Uh, I don't know. Tony Montana tries an awful lot. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, there's another crossover for you that would yeah, be cool. Well, lack of effort. Yeah. is not his, uh, is not his major problem. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah. I would say that it is stranger than I remembered. Um, and, uh, and better than I remembered. Um, and not, and, and much more different from the Scorsese oeuvre then I remember. Yeah, because Scorsese's, are, they're about process, right? Like, even that, the, the, sequence in Goodfellas where it's like, this is how it all worked, right? Like, this is where the money went, you know, this is how the, and, and you see the, the people doing collections and like all that stuff and that, that, that narration. The, this is less interested in that. This is, uh, Scarface is more interested in, in crisis specifically, right? Like yeah. in, in moments of, uh, moments of crisis and, and yeah, moments of kind of like strong, strong feeling or, or I don't know, extreme, uh, extreme, extreme emotion or extreme violence or, or things like this moments of crisis. I mean, I don't know, Mark, do you, I mean, I sometimes think of there being a sort of De Niro Pacino extended oeuvre that, that sort of on a gut level has similarities to itself, um, as was perhaps explored in the movie, the Irishman, but ultimately, when you actually watch the movies, it's not really like that. Right? Like they make crime movies. They make a whole bunch of different movies about people who shoot people. Um, but like Taxi Driver is not really that similar to Scarface, which is not really that similar to Casino, which is not really that similar to The Godfather. I guess Casino and The Godfather. No, they're not that similar. Yeah, I haven't seen Casino. Um, of course, it's in the, the two Godfather, uh, unfortunately, the all three Godfather movies. Um, and like there are very surface sim- level similarities between The Godfather and Scarface, right? Of course, you know, with the lead actor and, you know, roughly speaking, the character arcs and things like that. But like, um, well, here's what it comes down to is that like people say, you know, that The Godfather is this like, you know, Harold is this classic of, of cinema and, you know, Scarface is, is regarded as a classic as well, too. But like, I think people don't want to admit to themselves that they enjoy watching Scarface more, like immensely more than they enjoy watching The Godfather. <laughs> and that says quite a little bit. About the you American see, my psyche, son, what you need to do is push it to the limit. Right along the razor's edge. Here on the day of my daughter's wedding, you gotta live in. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little different. Yeah, it's it's nobody's like, man, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna just totally just drown my face in a whole pile of oranges, right? And then go out on top. <laughs> <laughs> So Bl- Blinky had that theory, right, that we were talking about before. 
Do you buy Blinky's headcanon about Scarface? Remind everyone what it is. Blinky's headcanon about Scarface. The, the audience uh, is not on our Slack. So. No, no, of course they would know. So Blinky's headcanon about Scarface is that Scarface in the final confrontation, in the lead up to the final confrontation, uh, knowingly takes what he would understand to be a fatal overdose of cocaine that he will not survive. Uh, and that, and that regardless of what happens, uh, and also regardless of what ta- happens in the, in the, uh, Scarface comic book, right. Or like the, uh, these sort of later attempts to make sequels to Scarface in which Scarface, uh, Tony Montana survives the events at the end of the movie, a la crank, right. <laughs> it's like, Oh, that guy's very dead. And it's like, but wait, you know, his, his heart is too intense to stop. Um, he, he did so much cocaine that he forgot he could die. But yeah, like, do you think that Tony Montana at that point is kind of even subconsciously committing suicide when he takes all those drugs? Um, or is it that Al Pacino is just doing great object work and isn't really doing fine dosages? Um, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's, what's the gesture? I have never, I've never, you know, been astride a mountain of cocaine, staring down a paramilitary group of Bolivian nationalists. So I don't really know how much cocaine one would store in that kind of situation normally. <laughs> so, uh, but, but that was the question was, do you think that Scarface kills himself? Um, I, I think he kills himself more by not fleeing, by not attempting to flee the house, right? right. Than than he does by not being more careful with with the the dosage of drugs that he's, uh, you know, that he's about to ingest. He's just built up a tolerance over time. It's not. I'm not saying it's safe. It's not safe, and he probably would would have some big health problems. But, uh, you know, not of such an urgent condition as the ones that end up uh, thrusting him face first into his pool, Gatsby style. Well, um, we've we've uh, we've uh, delivered an extra long podcast as befits this extra long movie, um, though, though not one that ever feels slow, even a little bit. So, you know, uh, it has that over an extra long podcast, I suppose. Um, but uh, let, let's leave uh, let's leave it there for for Tony Montana. Pour pour one out. For uh, Tony Montana, and by that I mean uh, pour the red blood, pour the red prop <laughs> blood into the neon blue swimming pool, uh, so that it so that it sp- spreads out, and then shoot the whole thing, you know, from from high above um, to you know I don't know g- give a sense of either the the grandeur or the lack of grandeur. One or it's one it's grandeur or, or it's it's lack of grandeur. It's. Uh, so one, one or the other. Um, all right. Thanks very much for listening. Pete and Mark, thank you as ever for, uh, coming on this, coming on this journey, <laughs> coming on this, uh, rise and fall journey, uh, with all of us. And, uh, we'll be back next week with more overthinking a podcast till then. And we're, we're not going to do the voice till then. Visit us <laughs> on the web and overthinking it where we subject the popular culture, unless that voice is cookie monster to a level of scrutiny. It probably <laughs> doesn't deserve. Nom 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 nom. I heard a little Yoda creeping in there at the end. Yeah. <laughs> My friends say hello to you, Will. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye to the bad guy, you say. Good you are? Good you are not. Hide, you do.
you know how to. <laughs> <laughs> Love me tomorrow, she will. Another quaalude she will have. <laughs> 